This morning we return to Luke chapter 17. The sermon text is verses 1 through 6 of Luke 17. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. As we return to Luke 17, let's ask the Lord to open our eyes uh, to this text. Uh, Father, uh, as we see this command to care and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ so much that we would seek forgiveness and have difficult conversations. Father, I pray that you would uh, use your word this morning to practically uh, change our own hearts, which would result in more reconciliation reconciled relationships, deeper fellowship. Father, let not our fellowship just be merely superficial, uh, but that we would uh, know each other and be in each other's lives. So pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If I was going to tell you what Luke chapter 17 is about in two commands. I would say, forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would say, be thankful. Next week and the weeks following, we'll look at how God calls us to be thankful. And we could say, well, church is dismissed. That's what God's word says. Forgive each other and be thankful but the reason why the scripture says more and Jesus says more and we'll spend uh, significant time considering forgiveness is because forgiveness is the major leagues of Christianity it's something we ask our children to do which we ought to But there's maybe nothing that requires more spiritual maturity than to forgive someone biblically from the heart, speaking the truth in love and not merely shuffling things under the rug. And that's why we we see in verse, uh, beginning in verse 5, the apostles respond uh, to Jesus' statement that uh, 
to, uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, repent, you must forgive him. And that sounds so difficult to the apostles that their response is increase our faith. They're saying, you haven't given us what we need in order to accomplish that high of task. Their view of forgiveness was not superficial. It was not just, oh, I'm going to say a few nice words to them and get beyond it. And so as we think about this topic that Christ uh, introduces, we need to realize that we need spiritual strength if we're really going to be able to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ. In uh, last week, we defined what forgiveness is. And one of the texts we looked at was Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And so he describes forgiveness as forgiving debts, which means whenever someone sins against God, and all sin is against God, but we also sin against each other. And when we do that, a debt is created every time. And we talked about last week, forgiveness is deciding not to make the other person pay for what they've done. And therefore, forgiveness is always voluntarily suffering on behalf of the other person. We talked about how if someone were to break a lamp in your house that was worth $50, if that person was to give you $50, they're going to have to pay for the wrong done. And if you're going to forgive them, then, and you want to replace the lamp, then you're going to have to pay the $50. One way or another, someone's going to pay. And if you decide, well, I just don't want a lamp, well, then you're going to pay without having light. And so when we think about forgiveness, you need to think of voluntarily suffering so that another person can be freed from a debt that uh, they've created by their sin or their offense against you. And we discussed last week how reconciliation is always our move. Uh, it's, it's always our move to seek reconciliation. Because in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that if we go to offer a gift to God or go to the altar and we remember that someone has something against us, we're to leave our gift and go and seek to be reconciled. That's if you know someone has something against you. Jesus says it's your move. You go seek reconciliation. And then in in Matthew 18, uh, we're told if someone has sinned against you, go to them and seek reconciliation. 
salvation, that there could be repentance and a restored relationship. But either way, it's your move as a Christian. If there's any conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, it is never the right move to wait and say, we'll see what they do. They were the one that caused the pain. Well, then Matthew 18 says, go talk to them. If you say, well, I know I did something, well, then go talk to them. Don't wait for the other person to seek reconciliation. We're the ones that are to make the first move. Now, we know from Romans 12 that we can't always bring about reconciliation because there's always two parties in in any conflict. In Romans 12, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. You hear that language? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You hear that? If possible, as far as it depends on you, do your part. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. So to forgive is to decide not to repay, but to leave vengeance to the Lord. For one sinner to repay another sinner for the wrong done does not glorify God. God will deal with that. What glorifies God is showing forgiveness to others as he's shown forgiveness uh, to us. So let's ask five questions. The first question is this. What does it mean to forgive? We've already answered that. It requires a debt being paid. Why should I forgive? Well, let's look at how Jesus paid the debt of our sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Let's think about this. So Christ was born into this world in order to suffer. That's why he came. He was righteous. We're the ones that are unrighteous. And Christ came to go to a cross to suffer on behalf of the unrighteous. Right? That's what Christ did. And Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So he says to Christians, look at what Christ did for you. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, God Himself took on flesh in order to pay your debt so you no longer have to make the payment. And the debt 
that we create in our sin, one sin against an eternal God, deserves eternal punishment because of the worth of that God. And so the only one that can make the payment has to have the exact same worth as the one who was offended. God was offended. God must be the one to make the payment. We cannot dig ourselves out of our hole. We cannot do enough good works in order for God to say debt paid. Jesus is the only one that could pay the debt on our behalf. So we ask the question, well, why should I forgive my brother or sister in Christ? And the clear answer is, because look at how God has forgiven you. Look at what he has done on to you on your behalf. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says it this way, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, Paul's suffering at the hands of sinful men. But he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. So Paul says, I willingly suffer so that the church can be built up. There's only one thing lacking in the afflictions of Christ that almost sounds blasphemous. But the only thing lacking is the real life example of the suffering that's before the people. Which means if God has called us to share the gospel with this world, there is no better way to teach them about what God has done for them than for you, the one who's been sinned against, to offer forgiveness back. You see, that shows them the suffering of Christ. Why should we forgive? How wrong would it be for us who've been forgiven an eternal debt that we could never pay, that would require eternity in hell. That's been wiped away so that we hold a grudge, so that we withhold forgiveness. We should forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Well, let, then let's ask the question, what does forgiveness require? Two things here. And I adapted this from this serving each other through forgiveness and reconciliation uh, uh, by Tim Keller. This, this article right here is excellent in answering the questions of what does it look like in practice. And, and if you want to uh, read that and dive deeper into this, it would be helpful just giving you practical examples of what it looks like to forgive um, first, you need spiritual humility. The offender, mu you, you must see the offender as someone who's of the same stock as you are. You can only hold unforgiveness in your heart against somebody if you put them in a different category as you. 
you have to see him as a monster in one sense, because then you can justify your unforgiveness. But you must see that the one who sinned against you is of the same stock that you're cut from. The scripture tells us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're not a monster. They're just like us struggling with sin every day. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means the way the Bible defines sin is not just murder or, or adultery or these big things, but it's anything you do that falls short of the glory of God. If you eat a candy bar without thanksgiving in your heart and just eat it, that's sin. God gave you that. If you do something well and someone gives you praise and you just soak it in and you don't give glory to God, at least in your heart or point them to why you're able to do it, it's sin. Which means we're all offenders. And we must have spiritual humility. In order to forgive, what it requires is that you remember who you are and what you deserve. That's why in that Romans 12 passage, he says, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought. That's when you're going to hold on forgiveness in your heart. When you start thinking that person's so bad and I'm so good, that's when bitterness grows and, and pride grows. <clears throat> How does Paul remind us that we're just like everyone else? Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Here's what Paul's saying. Remember, you're all were dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, spiritually dead. Everyone born after Adam was born not generally good, but with a heart rebellious against God. That's why our two-year-olds are selfish. No one had to teach them to be selfish. It's It's the nature they're born into. And Paul's saying we all were in that. And how did it change? What's the turning point? In verse 4 of Ephesians 2, it's, but God being rich in mercy has made us alive. That's the new birth. That's the Holy Spirit bringing new life into your body. Opening your eyes to the gospel. For by grace you've been saved. Meaning it 
You weren't saved when you cleaned yourself up and made some good decisions. That's not what got you saved. For Christ died for us when we were yet sinners, when we were still sinners. He didn't look down and say, I'm going to save the good ones, the ones who get it right. In fact, it's just the opposite. He says, I'm going to save the ones that recognize they're not good and cannot save themselves. Every other religion in the world says this, do A, B, C, and D, try to be good enough, try to be a good person and God will let you in. That's the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says there is no one who's good for all of us are by nature children of wrath and we need a savior. And those who get in on salvation are the ones who admit it and quit pretending that they could stand before a perfectly holy God and God would say, that's a good person. There is no good persons, which means the only way we can be saved is by grace. If God decides to be a savior, and he did, he sent Christ so that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life and salvation. So we need this spiritual humility. Listen how he says it in Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Well, what's, what's this good work that we're to be ready for? Now listen to this. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy towards all people. That's all relational talk. And then why does he, what does he link that to? If we're, if we're to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people, what's the reason? Listen to what he says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. You see that? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the new birth. The, uh, by the washing of regeneration. That's this, by nature, children of wrath, a person spiritually dead, becoming spiritually alive. And only God can do that work. And God does that work in a person's heart when they hear the good news of the gospel and they admit they're a sinner and they cry out and say, God, that's my only hope is a Savior like Christ. I could never be good enough to earn my way there. And so he calls us to live with one another in this forgiving sort of attitude because we were once foolish. You see that? That's the link. We need that spiritual humility. And then at the end of that passage in verse 9, he says, uh, but avoid this. This would be the opposite of uh, 
being ready for every good work. He says, avoid foolish controversies. Just think about this in this day and age. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, so that's the opposite of someone seeking reconciliation. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. And so the scripture takes serious within the life of the church that we not be those that are creating division and divisiveness and controversies. And the only way we can avoid that, because that all comes natural to our flesh, is to walk by the Spirit in the power that God provides for us in Christ, remembering who we are. Now, remember how we live on this earth? How did Paul say we live on this earth? He says, for the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's key. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. The life I now live in the flesh. And we take out our notebooks and say, okay, Paul's going to tell us how we live this life. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Paul, how do you forgive people? Well, I remember how God loved me and gave himself for me in Christ. That's how I live. And so that the Christian life, it's not, we're not just saved by faith. That's how you enter into Christianity. That's how you get saved. But then we live the Christian life by faith according to this gospel. We remember who we are. So it requires spiritual humility and you need spiritual wealth. If you're going to forgive someone, you got to see yourself in their same category, but you also have to have some wealth to make the payment for the debt. Last week, we looked at Matthew 18, the parable of the master who had a servant that owed him millions of dollars. And he begged for mercy, the servant and the master forgave him all the debt. All of it. And then that same servant that was forgiven all that debt, a man owed him just a few hundred dollars debt. And he went to that one and said, pay me my debt back. And he began to choke him. And the guy begged for mercy and said, forgive me, forgive me. And he would show no mercy. And the people saw this. Jesus is telling this parable. And the people saw it and they went and told it to his master. And then here's what we read in Matthew 18, 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with him or because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother 
from your heart. Let the seriousness of those words sink in. God cares about how you feel about your brothers and sisters in Christ at a heart level. Because what it proves, the person who can't forgive their brother and sister in Christ at a heart level shows they've never experienced it or tasted of the richness of God's forgiveness for them. Because you have a lot of spiritual wealth in your bank account if you're a Christian. You're able to forgive a lot of debts when you realize how much God has forgiven uh, you. In Colossians 2, here's how Paul says it. Now, when Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, here's uh, the main function that he's doing is you have a group of people that uh, Paul went on his missionary journey and preached the gospel and a lot of them got saved. And then as Paul went on, some false teachers came in. They called them Judaizers. And they basically came along and said, yes, you need Jesus but you also need to do all these good works in order to be saved. You got to keep the festivals and you got to keep the Sabbaths and you got to give more information from angels and you need all basically Jesus plus something else. And Paul hears about this and he writes them this letter. And in my mind, this is his main argument. He says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. These false teachers came along and said, oh, you need to add all this other stuff to your salvation. And then he says, according to human tradition, so these were made up traditions by men, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the full fullness of Deity dwells bodily. In the person of Jesus Christ, he's fully God. Now follow, follow the argument. And you have been filled in him. Who is the head of all rule and authority. So here's what he's saying. Look how crazy it is what you're doing. You're saying, well, we have Jesus, but we need to keep all these other regulations and we need the visions from angels. He's saying, are you nuts? Jesus is the fullness of God and you have been filled in him. And Christian, if you've been filled in Christ, do you have enough to forgive someone else? You're overflowing with spiritual wealth of Christ-like forgiveness. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Someone says to Paul, you're crazy. How can you live this life of self-sacrifice, getting beat up and stoned, and you just keep loving people? He says, because the love of Christ was poured into my heart. Don't think this is human love. I've been filled in Christ. And so he says to the Colossians, 
Christ is enough. You have all you need in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom are bound up and found in Christ. You don't need any human tradition or angel message. You need the fullness of Christ. He, he calls it the simplicity of Christ. He says all those other things, the Sabbaths and the sacrifices and the festivals, those were all shadows in the Old Testament that were pointing us to the thing that cast the shadow. And all those sacrifices, all those festivals, the Sabbath, which represents rest, is pointing to the rest we have in Christ. And he's saying, if you have Christ... How crazy is it to go worship the shadows? Don't do that. The fullness has come. And so in order to be able to forgive, you need spiritual humility and you need spiritual wealth. And the good news is, if you live by faith and remember who you are like Paul did, you have enough in order to forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ from the heart. One of the things that uh, Keller points out, he says there's three things to keep in mind when we're forgiving someone. One of them is this, God requires heart forgiveness. That the desire in your heart is to forgive. God requires speaking the truth in our relationships, not just shuffling them under the rug. And the third thing is he requires reconciliation. As Christians, we have to care about our relationships. And one of the interesting points he made is he said, it's easy to do one of these things at the exclusion to the other two. Let me give you an example. It's easy to want to speak truth to somebody if I don't really desire a relationship with them or if, if, if my heart doesn't really love them, it's easy to have a tough conversation and nail someone with the truth because you don't care if it ruins the relationship. You just, you just say, I'm bold. This is what I do. I speak the truth. But if God calls you to desire reconciliation, well, then that means the way you speak the truth matters. Paul says to speak the truth in love because the goal is a restored relationship. And it might be easy to speak the truth and want to keep a relationship in a sense, but not really forgive them in your heart. The hard thing is holding all three of those things together. He wants me to forgive them in the heart. He wants me to have this transaction where there's honesty and talking about the wrong done. That's what we talked about last week. And he wants me to desire a reconciled relationship. Sometimes we can fool ourselves by, by saying, I've forgiven them in my heart, but I just don't like them. I don't want to be around them. Well, then you haven't forgiven them in your heart. You see, we fool ourselves when we think we've forgiven people. It's when all these th three things can hold together that you know you have 
Christ-like forgiveness, biblical forgiveness flowing out of your life that could not be done apart from supernatural faith given to you by God through the regeneration, through being born again. So then we think of the question, when should I forgive? And here it's helpful to distinguish between two types of forgiveness. Uh, the, the first answer to the question of when should I forgive, when someone sins against you in such a way that it's left a lasting offense, which drives a wedge in your relationship, it's at that point that you know that you're going to have to talk to them about it. You have to be honest with yourself. Am I holding bitterness in my heart against this person? That's when you know you need to forgive. But do we rebuke or confront someone every time someone sins? We know that's not true. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs uh, 10.12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So I would say 95% of the time, you should be so rooted in your identity in Christ that someone sins against you in a way that you're saying they're probably having a bad day. I'm a sinner also. I, I'm not going to hold bitterness. I'm forgiving them in my heart. Call that unconditional forgiveness. But then there are certain ways people sin against us where that's just not going to happen that way. The relationship itself is a sham until you're able to work through the details and talk about it and be able to have repentance and forgiveness. And so it takes discernment. We're not to be thin-skinned that, that we're always going around finding everyone's fault. Jesus never did that. How often did Jesus show grace? But when he sees someone caught in sin, or the relationship is broke in such a way, there needs to be an interaction. When Peter denied Jesus, there needed to be Jesus and Peter meeting on the shore and having there be a restoration of that relationship. So it takes wisdom to know when you're to do which thing. And the Bible describes both of them. Unconditional forgiveness. Mark eleven twenty five. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone. Just right there. Just forgive. The Bible has a category for not taking it to the person every time. The question is, is can your heart do that? Does the relationship require, you know, if you've been thinking bad thoughts about me, but you've never told them to me, just repent before God. You don't have to come tell me and you were thinking bad thoughts about me. No, no that's going to make it harder on me. Just go to God with that. But if you say something unkind to me, and you've noticed it's harmed the relationship, well, now come talk to me. And I should come talk to you if you've done that, you see? It takes wisdom 
to know how to navigate this. Conditional forgiveness is what we see in Matthew 18. John MacArthur writes, there are some sins that are to be forgiven only if the sinner repents. These are willful, premeditated, habitual sins, sins that have become a pattern and direction of the sinner's life. These are sins that call for church discipline set forth in Matthew 18. In Luke 17.3, in our passage, that's the type of forgiveness Jesus is talking about. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. You see, if your brother doesn't repent, you ought to forgive them in your heart, but you can't extend verbal forgiveness to them until they repent. It's just a sham that your relationships together without there being repentance. And, and so in those situations, uh, we must discern uh, what we ought to do. And with conditional forgiveness, a lot of times people point to passages like Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And they'll say, so how did God in Christ forgive you? When you repent of your sins you had, and, and admit you're a sinner and say, God, I don't believe sin's going to offer joy in my life. I believe Christ will. I see what Christ has done for me. So when I confess my sin and I decide I want to follow Christ in repentance, then forgiveness is offered. And so they'll say that's how forgiveness is supposed to be, as Christ forgave you. But I will point out that even in that text, listen to it again, Ephesians 4.32, you seem to have both unconditional forgiveness and conditional I think you can see both in, in there. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So in order to offer conditional forgiveness, you first have to have heart forgiveness, a desire to forgive, a seeking to let go of bitterness, now, here's the thing. We're taught as children that forgiveness is this thing. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. And the brother or sister says, they're not sorry. Even a five-year-old knows when they're not sorry from the heart, right? So does any good really happen when, you know, I'm sorry I did that, when mom and dad tell them to do it? Well, what that does is that tends to make us cheapen forgiveness. Gives this idea that, Forgiveness is easy. Well, what did we say right at the beginning of the sermon? It's the major leagues of Christianity. In order to forgive someone from the heart will mean if someone's hurt you in a really bad way, maybe it's even an abuse situation in your past, it might mean waking up every morning and having to fight the fight of faith in remembering what God has done for you and deciding not to run the wrong through your mind all day long so that bitterness builds. This isn't an easy thing. It's a hard thing. It's not like when you say the words you magically are never going to desire in your heart to bring up those wrongs. 
It's hard to forgive someone and it's hard to keep them forgiven. It takes faith and the battle and you better be seeing the cross and the gospel clearly if you're going to have the motivation to continue to forgive. How should I forgive? Well, okay, we're going to go rapid fire. First, you start, if you're going to go to someone and seek forgiveness or you want to need to confront them, either way, start with your own confession of sin uh, if you know any and invite them to add to it. So you go with spiritual humility recognizing I'm a sinner too and I add sin to this relationship. How do I know that I've brought difficulty into this relationship? Start with yourself. You're telling them I'm not in a different category. You're a monster and I'm good. Own what you know to own and then have the spiritual humility to invite them to enlighten you to things you haven't seen. And listen in a way that isn't defensive. Don't respond right away back defending yourself, but seek to listen to how you've added to the conflict of the relationship. Even if you think 90% of what they're saying is bogus, listen. Be humble enough to believe that you're blind to it. Uh, I just want to read a few statements by Keller. He says, Um, real repentance has three aspects. Confession to God, confession to the wrong person, and offering a concrete plan for change so as to avoid the sin in the future. So specifics are important. Admit you're wrong without excuses, without blaming the circumstances. And then he says, most of all, do not make a confession a veiled attack. Don't say like this, if I upset you, I'm sorry. This falls into a category of attack. It means if you were a normal person, you would not have been upset by what I did. Do not repent to the other person of something. Uh, You are not going to repent to God, nor take concrete steps to change. And so these are some things to think through as as you're confessing your own sin. And then when you confront them, gently and respectfully share how you've been offended. Attack the problem, not the person. To go up to someone and say, you're so thoughtless, is to drive a bigger wedge into the relationship. The better thing to do would be to say, give a specific example uh, you know, I'm struggling with the fact that, you know, you, you walk by the garbage and you could take it out, but you seem to knowingly ignore it and it's bothering me. Well, you see, now there can be real change because there's something specific said. If a husband or wife says that to each other and just says, you're so thoughtless, well, now the relationship has a bigger wedge. So, so not attacking the person but being wise in in approaching the actual sin is is important. 
Um, when we attack the person with that language, we're indicating that we might be seeking payback rather than reconciliation. We want them to know how bad they hurt us and we want to make them feel bad about it. See, see what I mean? Why they ask for extra grace and faith in order to forgive. This is hard stuff. It takes real humility. I want to end um, by talking about one more thing, and that is what do we do when a brother or sister in Christ is fighting within the church and they're not reconciling and the other brothers or sisters in Christ are witnessing it? This is something that happens often in churches. And I want you to see why it's so dangerous and give you an idea how to fight against it. If you have, uh, let's say you have someone named Anne and Susie, and, and they're in a battle against each other, and they're not reconciling, inevitably, Susie is going to be closer to some people in the congregation. And so Susie's going to hang out with her friends. And if she has unforgiveness in her heart, desire for payback is rooted in that bitterness. And so what we can do is we can begin to talk down to the other person that's hurt us, to our friends. And that person has friends. And they begin to talk down about Susie in it, to their friends. And now you might have 20 people on each side, both hearing one side of what happened. And all of a sudden, a growing wedge begins to build inside the church between groups of people. Because of rather than individuals going to individuals, to deal with the hurts and the wrongs. They slander one another. And here's why it's so devastating. Now this group has something against this group, but there's no personal offense. You know, it's just, well, you did this to my friend and you did this. Now how are you supposed to reconcile that? You can see why almost all of Paul's, the majority of Paul's commands to the New Testament church are in regards to how we relate to one another and, and how we do that rooted in Christ. So it's my prayer. You've experienced the grace of God. The way you get in on salvation, it almost sounds so simple. You might think it's wrong, but Jesus says, unless you receive me like a child, you cannot have eternal life. And the way a person saved is by recognizing, I'm not good enough. The standard is God himself. And I could never be good enough to earn my way to heaven. But I recognize that God has bridged the gap in Christ. He's paid the price for my sin. If you'll receive him and trust him, what happens in your account before the books of heaven in that moment all your sins are covered in Christ. 
He paid, he died your death under the wrath of God so that you never have to fear dying and and experiencing the wrath of God in your death. And not only that, he gave you perfect righteousness in your account so that when God looks at you, he doesn't just see no sins, but he sees Jesus' perfect life in your place. And my prayer is, all of you have experienced that. And then if you've experienced that, what I say is, you have what it takes to forgive, to obey the call to forgive one another. Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to work in hearts. Any one of us could be gone today. None of us are promised tomorrow. Father, we, we think so many things in this world are important and often we forget to take account of our soul and ask the big questions of life, like what's really true? How does a person get to heaven and, and live with you in a reconciled way? Father, I pray that uh, we would shine the light of your forgiveness as those who have been forgiven. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.